I normally number my notes, and if I have nine or ten pages, that's average for uh, a given Sunday. And uh, there was so much to do, I have eight pages in fine print. I don't know what that means, but we're going to find out if I could even read it. Um, can't do two Sundays. We've got to do it all in one. That's the deal. Chapter number one. Let's go there. Chapter number one. Unless I have one of those interludes. You never know. Chapter number one. Now, I told you we're going to try to cover one chapter. Try. Try to cover one chapter every week through the book of Revelation. And I have a key verse that I'll always bring before you for each chapter. I know chapter 1, verse 7 is the key for the whole book, is he is coming. But uh, for this chapter, um, we have one verse that we're going to focus on more than any other. That's in verse number 12, the first part of the phrase, Then I looked to see the voice that was speaking to me. That's going to be the center of our attention today. I looked to see, or I turned to see, the voice that was speaking to me. So follow with me as I read through the chapter, Revelation chapter number 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and in the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he that reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits that are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, Firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, released us by our, from our own sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming in the, with the clouds. And every eye will see him, those, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you have seen, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it had been made to glow in the furnace. 
and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Lord, there's a lot here for us to see. An awful lot. This whole book is like that. But as we go through it, step by step, we pray that you might uh, show us more and more our Savior, Jesus Christ. But that's who we seek. That's who we serve. And we look forward to his coming, and we believe his coming is near. Prepare our hearts from this today, that we might be more like him each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now, that's a lot of material, obviously, and our our goal is not to take it word for word or verse by verse, which you know would take me 40 years. One chapter. You ready? You obviously see some things as you have just heard it read, and hopefully you did your homework this week and you read it anyway, and so you prepared yourself for today. The message came from God, verse number one said. This is his. We didn't make it up. It's not something man has created. This is entirely from God. That's why it's so remarkable. The things you read and you say, wow, what's that? What's it? Some of it's beyond us to understand. It's because we have to know its source. It comes from God. This is not man's imagination. It was communicated through an angel. Verse number one tells us that. It was communicated to John through an angel. But the rest of verse number or chapter number one from verse 17 on Jesus is speaking, 17, 1, chapter 1, 17, into chapter 2 and into chapter 3. He's going to speak a little while too. So we're going to notice that. We know it was written by John. He mentions that several times in this chapter. That's John the Apostle. And that's very important that we understand that because that will come up later. And they will say, oh, that's right. So this is John the Apostle writing in verse number 10 and 11 highlights that. It was a book written to the churches. He says it several times here, and chapter 2 and 3 highlight that, but especially you saw that in verse number 11. When he was told to write this, he was to write it in a book, what you see, send it to the seven churches. They're named Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Here's something very important for you to understand. These are real churches. These are not figurative things. They are real churches that were being addressed. And they had real problems, as we're going to see in the next couple of chapters. There were things that they were commended for because they were doing them right. They overcame. And there were things that they were called out for. Things that they caved, is a good word, means yielded to. 
things that they surrendered to in their situation that needed addressed. And both of those are recorded in the next couple of chapters. Things they did right and things they didn't. But these seven churches received this whole message, not just chapter 2 and 3. It was addressed to the church as a whole. I want to explain something to you just kind of carefully, and I hope you understand how I'm going to say this. These churches that he identifies here, they belong to Jesus. They were his. You saw that at the end of verse number 20 there. He holds them, right? They belong to him. They were purchased by him. All of them. We always give Laodicea the bad rap. That was a church that belonged to him. If he didn't love them, he would not discipline them. But we're going to see. Those are churches that he loved. Verse number 5 says, To him who loves us, John is writing, to the churches. To him who loves us. You see the pronoun? He's talking to the churches. He's including all of them. And released us from our sins by his blood. And he made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I could go through the identity of these churches. We'll talk about that more later. All of them are a church in Jesus Christ. That's what believers are. We're part of the church. And yet it's interesting, and I hope you understand this, he's localizing believers in a place. There were believers in Ephesus, there were believers in Laodicea. And he identifies them in separate locations, just like he could have put Hillsdale Bible Church in here. I don't know if you'd like that. But he could have done that just as well. And we know very well that the local church is made up of Primarily believers in Jesus Christ, but there are some who are not. And it's possible for unbelievers to be among us even today, right? It's possible. And there are possible for people to have problems in these churches too, and people who don't belong there. But the way he's identifying the churches here, he's identifying as those who were loved and released from their sins. That's an identification I want us to understand very carefully here. Because when you have a local church who knows the Lord, they belong to the big church. The church of Jesus Christ. They belong to Him. They belong to Him. How do you know they belong to Him? Well, let's walk through the identity of the church here in verse number 5 again. To Him who loves us. That's an identity we share with them. He loves us. I can't get over how amazing that is. That he should love us. That he should love us. We're going through a part in our Sunday school class across the way here. That if we come in here depressed every single Sunday, it's because of our topic. We're talking about the sin nature. And it's like, ugh. Man, is that a hard topic on an early Sunday morning. But here we go from there and we come to this passage and read those words and say, how beautiful that is. He loves us. He loves us. We know we're undeserving of that. We know that we rightfully would be under his wrath. 
Scripture says this very clearly. My favorite verse of all of them, if I could pick one and say that's it, is Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us. Now, what's interesting about that is this demonstration. God demonstrates His own love toward us. Even while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies, while we were yet strangers, while we were lost, while we were helpless, while we were dead, while we were walking in darkness, while we were partners with the prince of the power of this air, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a remarkable thing to me. God's eternal demonstration is in that verse. Because what's interesting is that Paul purposely, when he wrote that in Romans 5.8, he purposely used the present tense for that verb, demonstrates. He could have said demonstrated as like when Christ died, that was done, demonstration over, let's move on. But he didn't. The present tense in the Greek is what they, we call continuous. Which, in the nature of the word, it goes on and on and on and on. Whenever God wants to talk about his love for you, he will always point to the cross. That's his demonstration. That's his eternal demonstration. We know Jesus died once for all, yes. He's not re-sacrificing him every single time. He's just pointing back to that event every time to say, see, I love you. And when that changes, then you can be sure that God's love is different. Did you hear that? Sometimes we evaluate God's love for us like, well, it's good today, but tomorrow, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't lived out tomorrow yet, but sometimes, you know, I could be in one of those moods. And God may not love me. Thank the Lord it's not based on our moods. It's based on a cross. So God's love is not going to change unless that cross changes. That's where he said it before us. He says, this is the mark of my love for you. I'm going to exhibit every single day, every single hour. My love is as continuous as my display. He showed that the day Christ died. He showed that again the day Christ rose again. He shows that every single day. Yesterday, his display of love was the cross of Christ. Today, it's the cross of Christ. Guess what it's going to be tomorrow? The same thing. Christ died for us. That's God's demonstration of love. I go to conventions time here and there. Pastors get together and stuff. And This last summer, I went to one in, in Missouri, set up my little Dulas Bible Institute uh, display. Brand new for me, right? I got a chance after setting mine up to compare it to the other guys, you know, across the thing. I found out I'm not so professional as they are. I used PVC pipe as my frame. It looked like a plumber went wild. And I'm looking across and they're like, whoa, that looks really good. That's all this fancy stuff and everything. And I said, well, okay. So on my mind, it's like I'm going to replace the PVC pipe with something look more professional. 
Also, as you're looking at all these displays, you might realize that they're different than what they first were, the time they came, because we're in a world where we're always refreshing things. We have to change the logo. We've got to change the motto. We've got to change the colors. We've got to update the material. We go from, you know, old cassette players to DVDs. We, we move on with the times. We're always adjusting, always changing colors and banners and making it fresh and making it current. And here's a beautiful thing. God doesn't change a thing about his love. It doesn't need refreshed. It doesn't need to be remade in any way. It's already the best. And it's always the best. You can't replace the death of Christ. You can't replace that. Everything else is some cheap and useless imitation. Salvation, as you know, is only through the crucified Savior. That's it, and God will never change it. Period. That's his display of love. Notice what it says right there in that verse, 5. When it talks about... Jesus Christ and his relationship to us. He loves us. What a great term that is. What an encouragement to the believer to read that. It's because God loves us that he gave his son. Okay, you're saying, okay, pastor, what's that got to do with the book? This is a book that talks about many great things. Exciting things. I know we are really eager about this book because of all the things we're going to trace through and mention and all these pages and that. But let's mark it right at the start. There is nothing greater than his love for us. We could talk about all these events, and I'm not calling them insignificant at all, but I am saying this is significant. And that's why the book starts with it. He loves us. And he sent the message to the churches. It's because he loves us. And he wants to know he's coming again to receive us to himself. That's what the book is all about. He's coming again. He's coming again because he loves us. (laughs) And he wants us to be with him. Interesting journey between the two. That's what the pages will reflect for us. But he loved us. Mark that as first thing. Second thing marked from verse number 5 is that he released us from our sins by his blood. Released us from our sins. Wow. You know, there are some of you who may love somebody and will do all you can to help them, but sometimes you say, I just can't do that. I just can't do that. You know, if their need is monetary, we might uh, be able to help them with some funds. If their need is transportation or food, we might help them to get those things. If they're in sickness, if they're in a disease of some kind, we might try to meet that need. Some of you folks, especially, you work with medicine. You might uh, suggest surgeries or some procedure. We do what we can to help, or we do what we can to help them get through it, or at least to feel comfortable in the midst of something they can't change. We do things like that. But who can forgive another person's sins? You see, this is the heart of the problem, isn't it? Sin is ultimately an offense against God. Only He can forgive it. Only He can. And you know what's great? According to our verse, He does. 
He does. He's released us, it says, by his blood. Folks, this is the identity of every believer in Jesus Christ. Every believer in Jesus Christ has been released from their sins by the blood of Christ. That's one of our identities. It's very important that we understand how important that is. People say, and I know I've heard this argument, I've, I've got a doctorate in theology. You get a whole earful of stuff going through those courses. And people argue today whether or not Jesus died for the whole world or just the elect. I'll just tell you the truth, what I think. That's not easy to solve. It's not an easy thing to solve. But this I do know. I've been released from my sins. Whether or not that was something that from one side or another side, however you want to chop it up, only a believer could claim that I've been forgiven for my sins. Only a believer can do that. And if you want to know the heart of the issue of the majority of this book, it's because of sin that these things take place. There are chapters and chapters and chapters on the wrath of God. It will show you God's price tag he put on sin. We don't fully understand what he meant when he says, "In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But when you read this book, you say, whoa, that's what he meant by wrath? It's intense all the way through. Wrath on this earth is terrible. Wrath in eternity is frightening. And that's also covered in this book. Because that does not go away. Ever. It's not paid for over time. If you exit this planet through death without Jesus Christ, there is no remedy for your sin. None. This book points that out. I don't know what eternal condemnation is. Thankfully, I don't have to know that. I don't know what it means to be eternally separated from God. But there are a lot of people heading down that road. And if they leave this planet without knowing Jesus Christ, that's where they go. That's frightful. This book reveals to us the price tag of sin. It's a price tag of sin. And here's the reality. You cannot be released from sin unless it's through the blood of Jesus. That's what we see. That's what we rejoice in. You see, the Lord in His wisdom said to John, Write this entire message. Give it to my church. Give it to my church. I want them to know that I love them. I want them to know that I've released them from their sins. I want them to know that what I saved them from and what I saved them for. I want them to know it. You see, our identity is so different today because of Jesus than what we were without Him. It says in verse 6, He made us to be a kingdom. He made us priests to His God and Father. I, I say, Wow! I can't fully grasp all that yet. Someday I will. And I'll say, woo, that's pretty neat. But this is what it says at the end. And to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. With any part of God's message, there's so many facets to it, so much information. You can dig and dig and dig. 
unearthing one gem after another as you go through it. But I can guarantee it always comes to the same point. God gets the glory. God gets the glory. With all that we're going to work through here in these books, it's about God. And the one thing he wants us to see is his son, Jesus Christ. This is his revelation. It's a revelation of him. God wants us to see his son to his glory. There are such wonderful descriptions of Jesus in this book. You saw, as I was reading, started in verse 12 and it ran all the way through verse number uh, uh, 16. Very impressive display of Jesus Christ. You ever tried to figure out what he looked like? My favorite story, I've told it here many times before, I know. But there was a, a, a classroom where the teacher had given the assignment to her young children to draw a picture of their favorite person. And uh, they worked for that for a while, and then it was time to go out for recess. And, and uh, the teacher says, okay, we're, we're going to head out. But one little boy was still writing, drawing his picture. And uh, she says, well, you know, our time's up. He says, oh, just a few more minutes. I've got to finish this up. She walked over to say, well, who are you drawing a picture of? He says, God. God? Well, nobody's ever seen God before. He says, but I will when I'm done. (laughs) You know what's great? The scripture does say that, by the way. John, who wrote this, is the same one who wrote the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verse 18, this is what he wrote. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, that's Jesus Christ, he has explained him. What is that? The word explain means to lead the way, or to draw it out, or to unfold it. Your King James Version says to declare. Everything we want to know about the Father is in the Son. You look to the Son. That's why he says, I want to display my Son for you. Because when you understand Him, you understand me. There is no way for us to know the Father, or even go to the Father, except through Jesus Christ. That's it. He even said so, right? I am the way, and the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father, but through me. That's it. How appropriate. As John is getting ready to give a message to the church about the great love of God, the forgiveness of sins that we have, the change in our identity to that of a kingdom and priest, as he begins to write about the glory of God and the dominion and what he deserves, Jesus appears. (laughs) He hears a voice and he turns around and he says, Ah, there he is. There he is. He turned to see the voice that was speaking to him. You see that? He had to turn and see the voice that was speaking to me. Verse 12. And he sees Jesus. Look how John describes him. One more look at it here. How did John describe it? This is not in your flannel graph. All right? What you were used to before, this is amazing. I looked and I saw this voice, and what did I see? 
seven golden lampstands. Verse 13. In the middle of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man. He's clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. He's girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white. Like white wool. Does that surprise you? That doesn't match all our pictures. We always have brown. His white hair? Makes you feel better about yours, doesn't it? White hair. White hair. Okay. Keep going. It was like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze as if it just came out of the furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Draw that with your crayon. Wow, what a depiction. You say, is that, is that literal? Yes. Is it figurative? Yes. It's got an element of a lot of different things in there. How do you describe something that's indescribable? It's like this. It's like that. It's, it's a, this is as close as we could get on earth. When we see him, I could guarantee your response. Because John said it for us. What did he do? He fell on his face like a dead man. I say that heaven's going to have a lot of plopping sounds. We're going to do that often, folks. Just boom, down, we're seeing. Why? Here's John. Here's John who's writing these things, right? How many times has he seen Jesus before? Think it through. He was with them for three, three and a half years, right? He saw him there. He saw him on a cross. He saw him resurrected. He saw him where Moses and Elijah had appeared and Jesus was transformed before them. He saw him like that. He saw him walk on water. He saw him do his miracles. He saw all these things. He saw him in what we call a glorified, resurrected body. But now he sees him in his powerfully manifested full glory of God. And boom, down he goes. The same John. It was John, by the way, in John chapter 17 that recorded a prayer of Jesus. And in that prayer... Jesus asked his father this in verse 24, John 17:24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Wow. Most of us say, okay, that sounds like fun. Wait till you see it. What an impressive display. What an impressive display. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I would only hope, folks, that as we read Scripture, that we have a reverence for the one it's talking about. That we stop and say, that's our Savior. Wow, what a display set before us. Let's not minimize these words. Let's not just pass by these words. Take time to look at this. Because as powerful as that is, just like Jesus always does, he goes straight 
over to comfort John. First things he says is, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Verse 17. 18. I'm the living one. I was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. This is the message the Lord sends to the churches. Those whom he loves. Those who he has released from their sins. Those whom he has made priests and a kingdom. Those to whom he has revealed his glory. His message is this. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. If you want a book that describes the world as it is, and the punishments it's going to receive, and all the horrific things we have, you're going to read this book. But we know all the way through who's holding the keys. We know who holds the keys. God has told us these things. Why? Just so we know His plans for the future? Well, that's part of it. But why? I go back to our application of all these things from Titus 2, verse 11 through 15. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desire, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. This one looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He writes his book to the church so that they will be zealous for good deeds and know that they've been purified and purchased by him. He wants them to know it. It makes all the difference, folks, because these things ought to change us. Not just fill our head, but to fill our lives. Jesus is coming. You know that. This world is wicked. You know that, too. But we're called to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. Don't let them be your master. Instead, live sensibly, righteously, and godly right now. Because Jesus is coming. John would write later, this same John, 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, do you? Everyone who has this hope, fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. You're going to soon see Jesus. How close are you to be like him? That's where we are today. Working through the process of being like him. I guarantee if you read this book looking at Jesus, you will grow to understand more and more of his love for you and his holiness. You will see it side by side. 
and it's an amazing sight. We're going to try to keep that focus all the way through because we want to know our Lord, especially because He's coming. He's coming. Next week, read chapter 2. If you haven't read chapter 1, read chapter 1. Read chapter 2. We're going to go into chapter 2. One down, 21 more to go. Heavenly Father, what a great word you have for us. I pray, Lord, that we're not looking for the sensational and we miss the Savior. Because this is about Him. It's a revelation about Him. So help us to keep our focus as we go through this study. To always look for Jesus. So that we know He gets the glory. Thank you for this study today. Challenge our hearts with it, we pray. Help us to examine ourselves and see how we are like Christ. And what needs work. As we submit to you, thank you for your power. Your power to love us and to redeem us, to set us free from sin, to change our identity forever. What you have done is marvelous, and we love you for it. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.